And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Major Garrett, chief Washington correspondent for CBS News, has been covering government and politics in print and on TV for decades. I did a podcast with him a few years back about his life and career, but I wanted to get together with him again this week to talk about the trials of American democracy a week before a portentous midterm election and the book he recently co-authored, The Big Truth, Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie. Here's that conversation. Major Garrett, it's great to see you again, my friend. We meet at a portentous time, uh, one week before or six days before the big uh, midterm election. Uh-huh. So who better to who better to speak with uh, than you at a time like this? We've been through many of these together. We have. You you have uh, written a book, The Big Truth: Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie. You did this with a with David Becker, who's an expert on election, um, on election administration, and a lot of these issues. I want to talk about that, but uh, I want to talk about it in the context of this midterm election because this is sort of mm-hmm. the shadow that's hanging over um, these elections, and. Um, uh, so, be, before and anybody who wants to know uh, uh, Major's story should go back and listen to our last podcast together because he has a deep <laughs> and rich story in journalism. And we'll, I want to talk about the, the state of journalism and political mm-hmm. coverage as well uh, in this conversation. But give me your sense of, uh, of where we are six days out uh, before these midterm elections, and I'll, I'll share mine. So I was just in Santa Fe, New Mexico over the weekend, and I talked to California Governor Gavin Newsom, who was there on behalf of the Democratic Governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham. And he doesn't have a close re-election race, but he was there because she does. And that's kind of a surprise. And I said, are Democrats on defense? He said, yeah. And I said, does it feel to you like a red wave? He said, yes, it does. He said, I'm not paid to say that I'm supposed to be the cheerful optimist, but I'm also a pragmatist. He said, I'm looking at the data, but I can also feel it. I said, what does it look like in California? He said, there are four house races in California that five or six weeks ago weren't competitive, but are now. Now, That's just one voice, but um, Governor Newsom has just gone through a recall election in California a year ago. So he is in the midst of this environment. Um, He lived through it. He prevailed on that recall with the help of a lot of Democrats nationally. He poured a lot of money and a lot of attention into that race. He pulled through. He's now in a much better political position, but he's scanning the sort of horizon and he feels like the shift that has begun to exhibit itself in polls is very real. And in the last week or two, inflation, public safety, the persistent issue of immigration, which among Republican voters and some swing voters simply never goes away, are coalescing to counter what was for two or three months substantial grassroots energy within Democrats in reaction to the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade. As you know, David, there is an ebb and flow in political conversations. There's an ebb and flow in momentum. And after the Dobbs decision, Democrats who were really, really down on the dumps, Biden's numbers were way down. They didn't seem to have any 
either messaging or a set of accomplishments they could point to, got a little bit of a message, put some accomplishments up on the board and began to narrow the gap and felt that there was a possibility of pushing back against what looked like a red tide or a red wave. That optimism has begun to diminish. That's certainly, I think, the case more precisely in House races. I think in Senate races, it's very close, but I don't need to tell you, David, you've lived this on both sides of the equation. There are some times when an atmosphere or a wave ticks over 10 or 15 races just by the hair's breadth. And that's the Mm -hmm. dimensional difference between a huge wave and something that looks more statistically normal in a first midterm election after a change in the presidency. I think we're in that in-between space. I think Republicans certainly can imagine a scenario in which they pick up 15 to 20 House seats. They can also imagine a strategy and they're putting money on, on a lot of races that are at the margins where that could go up to 30 or maybe 35. I don't think we're talking 50 or 60 or anything like that, in part because Republicans and the House races won a lot of races in 2020. That was a rejection of President Trump, but not Republicanism because they did well down ballot. On the Senate races, I think Nevada is very difficult for Democrats. Uh, Arizona is getting closer than Democrats are comfortable with. Wisconsin feels like it's slipping away. So you're left with Pennsylvania, Georgia, and then you're suddenly worried about New Hampshire, maybe, and maybe Washington. So it just feels like the field is expanding before Republicans' eyes and, and receding before Democrats' eyes. Well, you know, there's a certain gravitational force that comes in these midterm elections. Um, you know, we've talked about this. I've talked about this many places, maybe not here, but, uh, you know, the history is very, very clear. I mean, it is a really unusual development for a party to be able to resist, uh, a governing party to resist this tie. You talk about, about ebbs and flows. I mean, for the governing party, midterm elections are generally about ebbs. And for the yes. challenging party, it's all about flows. Uh, and, you know, earlier this year, you know, when you looked at various elements that you look at, if you were clinically looking at something like a doctor would look at a chart, you'd say, well, direction of the country, you know, sharply negative direction of, uh, you know, people's attitudes toward the economy, which were, which were better six months ago than they are now, not good, uh, president's approval rating in the low 40s. If you knew nothing else, you'd look at that and you'd say, well, the incumbent party is going to have a rough day. And then, as you said, the, the, the comes June, the Dobbs decision, Donald Trump reemerges in a big way, the January 6th hearings. He embraces candidates who are who are quite extreme because he's doing it on the basis of whether they'll deny the election or not, the last election. Uh, so he saddled Republicans with some tough candidates in places. Um, and all of a sudden there was a sense that, well, you know, Democratic enthusiasm is up, which is really why incumbent parties lose midterms is that their enthusiasm isn't as great as the party who is wanting to express their grievance. And uh, But what happened in September was that the Republican committees, which are much better funded than the Democratic committees. Democratic candidates are better funded generally than Republican candidates. They raise money more readily from the grassroots. But these committees get money from corporate donors and large donors and 
they came roaring in in September with ads about crime and ads about uh, the economy. Uh, and those had an impact, you know, uh, and the distance from Dobbs, the distance from some Democratic legislative victories in the summer have, uh, you know, Biden's numbers, uh, have they were moving up for a while. They're now sort of settled or moving down. Um, and here we are, uh, you know, a week before the election. And it feels a little bit like we are back where we were in the spring, where the natural forces that you anticipated are taking hold. Gravity is having its say. And I think that's another dimension to this, David. And I've been talking to a lot of people who are working in the field and a lot of these campaigns and knocking on doors and doing the canvassing and the direct voter contact. And Many of them are, are Democrats, some are Republicans, and the Republicans are telling me, look, we were doing this work in 2018 and 2020. 2018, it was really, really hard. There was such a reaction against Trump. It was very hard to make any way headway at all. In 2020, it was sort of a little bit different, but in both instances, those swing voters, particularly in the suburbs and the exurbs, which are different places, but equally important, they certainly were in 2020. Uh, felt that their economic situation and their public safety orientation was such that they could make a more personalized decision about what they preferred. Now, because their economic situation is noticeably different, inflation is in front of their eyes every day. If they're looking at their 401ks, if they have them, they have taken a hit. And the idea about public safety, and you can have a statistical argument about by order of magnitude, how much worse is it than it was in the 70s and 80s? Or you can say, is it more worse in red states or blue states? Doesn't matter. When public safety cuts, it usually cuts deeper than almost any other issue other than the economy. And so those things are combining to take away that sort of, well, I feel comfortable economically. I feel public safety comfort. Therefore, I'm going to make this a Biden or Trump. And who do I like better? Now it's more like, what am I satisfied or dissatisfied with? And that dissatisfaction seems to be trending toward Republicans. And it's part of this underlying atmosphere. And one other thing I would say, look at Nevada, maybe other states, but Nevada in particular to me feels like a state where we could describe something like long political COVID. Long COVID is a diagnostic description of a long illness related to a COVID infection. But I think there's going to be a sense of in places like Nevada, where the governor, Sisolak, is working really hard. Democratic governor, yeah. Yeah, Democratic governor working really hard. He's got great ads about sports and jobs and all the things he's done. But there's an undertow, especially in Nevada, about lockdowns and their economic effect. And I think in a couple of other places, you're going to see a kind of long COVID aspect as part of if Democrats lose and Republicans prevail, not universally and not nationwide, but in certain places that will be an undertow of its own. Yeah. Listen, um, there are a couple of stats that I think sort of uh, that that should be big red flashing lights for Democrats. Um, uh, in addition to the statistics that I shared, you know, three quarters thinking the country's on the wrong mm-hmm. direction, three quarters thinking the economy is bad, Biden in the low forties. Uh, uh, but uh, the the Wall Street Journal poll this morning, and I really respect. Uh, that poll because uh, John Anzalone is as good as there is on the Democratic side, Tony Fabrizio as good as there is on the Republican side. And they report a 15-point shift from August among suburban women who, as you know, are a very big target of both parties. It's an absolute earthquake. 
Yeah. Now, I, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, as you look at state polls across the country, that number may be somewhat exaggerated, but the trend is not. Uh, and that mm-hmm. is that 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 should be uh, a real concern for uh, uh, for Democrats. And then the other hasn't been reported. But I talked to a pollster that I respect who's been polling all over the country. And he told me that uh, the, you know, there's a small group of undecided voters, but a lot of these races will be decided by how those voters break at the end because they're very, very close. They're marginal races. Uh, Biden has an 86%, 85% disapproval rating among those voters. So, uh, you know, the likelihood of them tipping in the Democratic direction is pretty small. So all that, you know, you add up and you say this this may be a, like a typical midterm election when conditions are are not good. And as you say, the House losses may be limited somewhat by the fact that uh, we're we're you know, we've already uh, Republicans have already, uh, you know, they're only five seats away from taking the majority. Right. So, that you know, right. there's but but still, uh, you know. They're dreaming of numbers in the 30s, and that wouldn't have been the case six weeks ago. No, of course not. Now, having said all that, the midterm votes will be cast and counted. Elections will be certified. Winners will be identified. And then there'll be a reassessment. And if it's a Republican House and Republican Senate, President Biden is going to have a completely different matrix. And the idea of Republicans in power and what that looks like and how that does or doesn't resemble a pre-Trumpian return to the White House will change the political dynamic again. That is right now an abstraction. After this election, if Republicans prevail in the House and Senate, it will no longer be an abstraction. It will be real. And the Democratic orientation to that and the country's orientation to that will be the next after effect. And the political tides will begin to shift because of that as well. None of this is static. On that point, I, I I'll come back to the election. You and I, um, we became closely acquainted back in the early years of the Obama administration when you were the you were the White House uh, correspondent for for Fox News, and uh, you so you covered the 2010 uh, midterm uh-huh. election from the standpoint you know from the White House uh, perch there. Um, how I mean, are you having any flashbacks because you know I, I still have some I still have some tire tracks on my ass from I, I got upgraded <laughs> for using I have tire tracks on my butt uh, from that uh, election still that I that are indelibly imprinted. Right. So uh, 2010, as you well remember, 63 house seats, it's not going to be that in part because the room to move is not nearly as high because in the 2008 election, as you also well remember, because you were intimately involved in the entire national strategy, that was a high watermark. Yeah. High watermark for Democrats in terms of the president and, um, and what, what, uh, the number of house seats gained, Senate seats and the midterm elections in 2010, there was a lot of room for Republicans to grow and grow. They did. And that's not going to be true this time. But one thing that will be somewhat similar will be this idea of 
kind of Republican grassroots rebellion is too strong a word, but pushback on a, on a sort of unified set of issues and a repetitive pounding narrative about what's wrong with the country, which was also prevalent in 2010. Of course, the economic situation was much different. What President Obama inherited in 2009, people forget. I know you don't. Yeah. No. But the month the month he took office, if I recall correctly, 750,000 Americans lost their jobs. Yeah, I think uh, closer to eight. Yeah, yeah 800,000. It was, you know, I mean, we were confronting every single day for several months after we took office the, the, uh, the possibility of a second Great Depression. So it was a different, you know, people lost their homes, people lost their jobs. And yes. uh, no, it was a different kind of crisis. This is an odd economic situation because unemployment is at Completely historic lows. Completely so odd. Yes. Yeah. Employment is at historic lows. Wages are up, but they're not keeping pace with inflation. There is a tremendous, uh, I know this because my three grown children are in the job market. There is a hunger out there for workers, skilled workers and unskilled yeah. workers. So it's not as if you can't get a job in America. And it's not as if once you get a job, your wages haven't risen in the last year. Now, they just haven't kept pace with inflation. And we don't have stagflation. It's not a kind of an economy that is circling the drain. Uh, this idea of a recession, yes, it's talked about, but it's not a practical reality. The most no, although in quarter, people, but 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 in the polling, you see people. Yeah, it shows a up. majority of people up. believe believe that we are in a recession. And you can't talk people out of what they believe. Exactly. That that's what I wanted to say. You know, I wanted to say, welcome to my world. When I was doing this work, you know, what we learned was it didn't matter how much objective progress you were making if people did not feel it in their lives, if they felt. Uh, if they felt otherwise, that, you know, trying to persuade them otherwise was actually a losing political strategy that made you look out of touch uh, and made you look uh, in disingenuous. And so, I mean, this is the thing that Biden has confronted here because he wants to go out and tout the economic progress that's been made since he took office. And he's got a case to make. He's cut unemployment almost in half. Uh, and wages are up and all of the things that you mentioned, uh, you can't really win that argument in an environment in which people feel like they're being punished by inflation, which is at a 40-year high. By the way, also sees the whole planet, not just the United States of America. So, you know, right. uh, inflation is higher in Britain. I don't think it's Biden's fault, probably. But, uh, but nonetheless, Politics being what it is, no. if you're sitting in that chair, as Harry Truman said, the the buck stops here, and people don't feel the buck is going as far as it used to. And I want to make this observation, David, because I'm actually struck by this what I'm about to say. So I'll judge that when I'll judge that when you say it here. Yeah. Uh, so the president <laughs> is trapped in one at one level by the transitory nature of inflation, which he's was stuck with or said for about six months. But that's not my big observation. My big observation, maybe it's small, is this. I'm really perplexed that after the American Rescue Plan, the CHIPS bill, infrastructure, and the Inflation Reduction Act, which is nearly $5 trillion of spending that Democrats drafted, understand why they did. There's a programmatic reason behind it. After all of that, 
the argument for most voters that I've been traveling around the country on my book tours, I'm watching a lot of ads on TV, is principally about abortion. And abortion is a really important issue. And privacy rights and everything that comes under that umbrella is very important. But after $5 trillion, if you don't have a coherent and noticeable economic message, I'm left sort of dumbstruck by that. It just seems to me a strategic failure of Democrats. They passed this. They had a reason, set of reasons for passing it. And they're not talking about it in ways that feel robust, confident, proud, assertive, or visionary about it. And I don't understand that. I'm literally dumbstruck by that. Yeah, I think that's going to be hotly debated, you know, after this election as to why that was. Some of it is what I said, which is there was this idea that uh, there's been this idea that if uh, if you don't talk about uh, the economy, you know, and divert people to, to other issues that are more favorable to Democrats that you can win. But it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, hey, there's this uh, elephant in my living room, uh, you know, pun, I guess, intended. And, uh, you know, you really can't ignore it. And the fact is that there was a, there was an argument, there are several arguments, Major. One is, that just that the, here's what we have done. The fact is that people don't necessarily feel it, so that's that's an issue. But there's also where the Republicans were on these things, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, and and that's an issue. And then there's the one that Obama's been out there making, which is that you know we haven't solved all these problems, but we're working at it. And while they're working on. Uh, uh, you know, eliminating abortion rights, uh, denying the last election, impeaching uh, the president, uh, you know, for 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 offenses to be determined later. Uh, And, you know, and that, you know, there are arguments that could have been made that incorporated uh, the economic, both the record of accomplishment, but also uh, creating a contrast. And of course, the the uh, task for the very difficult task for any governing party in a midterm election is to turn it into a choice rather than a referendum. Uh, and, Correct. Uh, and, and, you know, in the summer, it looked like Democrats might have the ability to do that. Uh, but, yeah, there, there will be the question, did Democrats uh, become too uh, in love with the abortion issue as a, uh, as a kind of uh, the major cudgel? Uh, I think it will help Democrats. Right. The Democrat enthusiasm is up because of it. Although no in doubt, these polls, no one of the other stats in these polls right now, which speaks to the primacy of some of these other issues, is that Democratic enthusiasm, there's now a gap that has returned between Republicans and Democrats. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Let me postulate something larger, because you're a big thinker. Hmm. I, can't, I don't think that, uh, yeah, I know I'm setting the bar high here. You know, I'm, I really don't think that we have recovered from 
we may have recovered somewhat from the pandemic. I don't think we recover from all the effects of the pandemic. You mentioned one that has rippled through our our, our uh, political political debate, which is the whole closing of schools and the disruptions, particularly for children uh, that were caused by the pandemic and whether that was all uh, necessary and did it go on too long and so on. That That is one of them. But I think there's something more, which is a general sense that things are just sort of out of sync. They're out of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, in that context, and I say this uh, as someone who really admires the president and who, and who thinks he hasn't gotten uh, the credit for the things that he's done that are substantial, we're going to be the, the infrastructure bill will pay substantial dividends for generations to come. The chips bill was at least a down payment on reinvigorating American manufacturing, on, on creating uh, a bulwark against uh, China. Uh, on this sensitive on you know semiconductors and so on uh, I mean it's, it, there are things that he's done you know the 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 uh, investment in climate uh, change and so on the, these are things that will uh, pay dividends for uh, for a long time to come not getting that credit but in an environment in which people feel things are out of control he at the age of 80, which he will, mm-hmm. I guess, turn this month or next, uh, is not a, he's not the command, he's not a commanding figure. And that's a caustic kind of mix, a sense that things are out of control. And uh, the president whose performances are not commanding performances, not his performance on the job, but his performance in front of the cameras with you guys. So there are a lot of issues there. Uh, first of all, we just did a poll, our CBS News Battleground Tracker poll, and we had a question that's very close to what you just observed. And it was not the typical right track, wrong track question. It was, do you feel the country is out of control? And David, 80% said they felt the country was out of control. 80%. And that goes to a larger psychic construct, which is not right track or wrong track, but do you feel a sense of things slipping away? Like, you're not even sure if we can hold on. And when you get to 80%, people wondering, can we hold on? That's, that's, that's economic. That's what is the structure and resilience of our democracy? What is our level of faith and confidence in our institutions? And this is, brings me to the president. He is not a vigorous person rhetorically or in person. There are times he's better than others. You know that very well. But there are times when he is painful to watch. Now, that's not an ageist comment. That's just a, I've watched five presidents up close. You've watched more than I have, but I've watched them up close. And I'm not saying he doesn't have the tenacity or the will or the capability to do the presidency. He clearly does. But there is a performative part of the job. There always has been. George Washington knew it. Every occupant of the office knew it. Some better than others. And on that level, he suffers. Now, he knew he would suffer because he took the job at an age when he's not the Joe Biden that I covered in the Senate for many, many years. There are times when he looks, I'm, I, I, I see him, I see that senator from 20 years ago, and there are times that I don't. But that lack of vigorousness is a drag on the entire nation's ability to absorb this moment and as, ascribe credit 
for the things you've just described, and that will be part of the Biden legacy for however many terms it lasts, one or two. The country will be in a different place, and in many respects, I would I would argue positively different, different because Republicans, if they take control, are not going to get rid of much, much of what's already happened. They're just not. They're going to do other things, but they're not going to try to pull apart. We know this because we've seen that with Obamacare. You lived every one of those wars, David, and then you watched them play out for the 30th vote, the 40th vote, the 50th vote, the 60th vote. Oh, and then Trump gets it and they get control. And I wrote about this in my book, Mr. Trump's Wild Right. They tried and they fell apart completely because they had no approach politically or from policy to undo Obamacare. They did take one component part of it in the tax bill, but they didn't undo it. And they don't even talk about it anymore. So the 10-year cycle of grievance and then acceptance, I think, will play out for much of the Biden agenda, just because I've watched that happen with Obamacare. Nevertheless, in this moment, the president is harmed by his lack of vigorousness, and there are times when he looks less than he should be in that role that we've come to expect in the television era. This idea that the country has a control problem and this long-term sense of what was lost during COVID. I think a lot of things were gained during COVID. We talk about mental health much more openly and with candor and less sense of fear and stigma. That's a long process, but I think that is something that came out of this. We learned there were a lot of collaborative ways and adaptive ways. I don't think it was all in that negative, but there are memories about it that will be harsher than the lived experience. And I think part of that will manifest in the midterms. Yeah. I mean, and there's, you know, another discussion to follow uh, because, um, you know, the Post did a story yesterday about the election planning that that, uh, the president is doing for his reelect. And I will say that, you know, I remember the crepe that was... uh, hung all over us in 2010 and the uh, obituaries that were being written for Barack Obama, the political obituaries after he lost 63 seats in the House in 2010. Two years later, he won a resounding victory, became the only president since Eisenhower to win uh, majorities of more than 51 percent twice. Um, so, you know, these things are not always predictive. The, the wild card is the one that you suggest, which is, um, you know, I, I say all the time, the issues are for, for the issue for Biden is not political. He can come back from this politically. I mean, one thing I want to talk to you about is the implications of a Republican Congress and how that will play. But, um, the, uh, the, the, the problem is actuarial and just, you know, are the things that you are noting, are they likely to get better in the next two years, uh, given the given the grueling nature of the of the job? And none of this obviates the things we talked about that he's accomplished, the leadership he's played on the Ukraine issue uh, and pulling the uh, pulling the NATO alliance together and uh, with, uh, you know, steely resolve. Um, and so, you know, none of that, none of that obviates, none of this obviates that, but it's just the reality. And I think if Democrats have a bad day next Tuesday, these discussions are going to be more open 
because that's the nature of politics. You know, it's a brutal, unforgiving business. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've, I've felt that uh, as well. But um, let, let's talk about that because you have covered Congress um, as well as the White House. Uh, if you're sitting in the White House and you're looking at these numbers and you're, I mean, I think that at this point, and look, I, I could end up being wrong about this. Uh, that's, you know, the great thing about democracy. People get their say and we shouldn't prematurely judge it, but it seems uh, seems very, very likely Republicans will control at least the House and and very possibly the Senate, uh, but certainly the House come the next election, uh, come, uh, come next January. What does that mean for, for Biden? And if you were sitting in the White House, what would you be thinking and planning for? So the first thing I would be circling is what could I get done in the lame duck session? What is doable? What is permissible? Is there anything through one more reconciliation bill that can happen on a 50 vote majority in the Senate that I can eke through and I can get through the parliamentarian? Are there any component parts of immigration that you can deal with there? Um, can you resolve and get agreement on a debt ceiling extension that if not in perpetuity, but puts that out of immediate danger zone. Now, I can understand a cynical argument. No, let Republicans prove their extremist tendencies right off the bat and let them walk into the box canyon of a debt ceiling crisis. Look, I've lived through more than one debt ceiling crisis. They're no fun. Um, And if I'm in the White House for the good of the country, for the good of my presidency, uh, and for the good of financial markets, not just in America, but globally, and at a time when Putin is trying to use as savagely as he can what remaining economic global impact he still has, I don't want a debt crisis for the United States. So I want to try to resolve that in the lame duck if possible. Then I know the investigations are coming. And I but let me just stop. Let me just stop you one second there, because yeah. one of the variables here is the impetus for Mitch McConnell. You know, we got a lot done in 2010 yep. during the lame duck session, in part because McConnell knew what was coming on the House side and he understood what he couldn't, what he wasn't going to be able to get done uh, on the House side uh, once that new uh, crop of, uh, of uh, you know, more populist right wing members came. And so he wanted to get a lot of things done, extending the tax cuts and you know, mm-hmm. yep. a, a number of other things. The question here is, does he feel that same sense of urge? He knows what it would mean to, to breach the debt ceiling. I mean, that would be an economic catastrophe. Would he, you know, how hard will he work to try and resolve a bunch of this stuff before that new group uh, comes in? Because he's going to be, you know, if, if whether McConnell's a certain, uh, I keep thinking if he's going to be the majority leader, He'll celebrate on the night that he becomes the majority leader when the votes are clear. Uh, and then he's going to be the dog that caught the car because he's going to have to handle all the stuff that these folks in the House send over. And there could be mm-hmm. some really crazy stuff. Yeah. I think this is why he wants, this is why he likes the filibuster because, in part, because it gives him a chance to say, hey, I just, you know, I, we got a filibuster here. I can't do anything I about it. I can't do it. I can't do anything about it. So I think the, 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 the most 
the, the next most important thing, and I would imagine the White House is already working on this because Ron Klain is no dummy and neither is Steve Reschetti or all the other people around the president. They're looking at a lame duck strategy. What can you salvage? What can you protect? What can you advance in what could be a productive and busy lame duck session? Um, because you basically are saying what is doable that can be built on for the next two years while Republicans run either the House or the House and the Senate. Then you know the investigations are coming and you uh, buttress and reinforce the White House Counsel's Office. Uh, you get uh, every cabinet agency understanding uh, what the prerogatives are, what the requirements are. And you probably <laughs> go back to um, some of the tools that the Trump White House used to push off Congress, even though you know those were institutionally harmful, you might be tempted to use them, meaning to say, I don't have to respond to this congressional request because I'm the president, even though it's a legitimate oversight request. The Trump administration pushed back aggressively on that, altering all of those fundamental understandings between the executive and legislative branch. Uh, this brings me back to my book in which I warn Everyone who indulges... You're doing all my segues for me here. <laughs> who indulges in election denialism and thinks, well, I have a grievance about whatever election it is, and that will never spread. It will spread. Just yeah. as these ideas of smashing into the guardrails of our institutions leaves a mark for everyone. It doesn't leave just a mark for you. Well, listen, one of the things that that has always uh, concerned me is that every norm you break is hard to reassemble. It every norm that's shattered is hard to put back together. And we've seen one after another norms uh, shattered. And there is pressure on both sides, right? There's pressure from the Democratic mm -hmm. side yeah. saying, why are we, why are we playing, why are we playing uh, touch football when they're playing tackle? You right. know, uh, but or, or Mad Max or whatever, yeah. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Let's talk about your book. And the big truth, upholding democracy in the age of the big lie. And just to kick that discussion off, because this is a central concern uh, here, uh, CNN had a poll today, and it was a 50-50 split people of people who said they think the election will be, uh, that they have faith in the results of this election, that they will believe the results mm -hmm. of the midterm elections. And, you know, it, Democrats were far more, you know, 67% of Democrats said, yes, I will have, I will trust the results of the election, which I think is low, by the way. Uh, yes. But six, but 66% of Republicans say they will not. And, uh, right. and Unless you know, and, yes, yes. Uh, so this has now become the norm. And by the way, this has vi gone viral globally. You know, you see in Brazil, mm -hmm. uh, we there was an election the other day. Uh, and uh, the incumbent, who's an ally of Trump, has not, you know, he, he has not yet conceded uh, the election. I mean, this is worldwide. I mean, what happens here, especially in democracies, sets a 
sets a pattern. So um, that's the context in which I want to I want to mm-hmm. ask you about this book. First of all, tell me about why you guys wrote it. And I know part of it is rooted in your own sort of passion for this this process that you've covered for for decades. The greatest privilege of my life, David, was to rise to the level where I could cover national politics. It was the dream I had as a child and to watch and observe uh, Americans sort out issues and advance the American experiment has been the greatest experience of my life. And I love our country. I love its flaws. I love its strengths. I love everything about it, practically. And I really wish I didn't have to write this book, but I had to. It was a calling. It's probably the only book I've written of the five that I've put together that was a calling. I made less on this book. I'll probably, well, on the advance, certainly by several orders of magnitude than any book that I've ever written because people were not that interested in the idea. The original concept was just to write a book thanking and kind of a love letter to election administrators who in 2020 did something amazing. What did they do? They put together an election which saw the largest turnout of any election in our nation's history with the most diverse electorate ever. 20 million more Americans participated in 2020 than in 2016. We had more paper ballots than than any election in our history. 95% of all ballots were cast on paper. We adapted in ways that were without precedent and without roadmap. We achieved all of these things with a global pandemic raging and no vaccines. And election administration work is by very nature intimate. It's up close. You don't have to vote in person, but election administrators have to work in person eventually. We trained 400,000 new Americans as poll workers, David, in 2020, and we did so almost entirely over Zoom. Election administration means working a precinct, working a polling area, working a vote counting area is very precise work. You have to understand where to go and how to maneuver things. Learning all that over Zoom is much, much difficult, much more difficult than learning it on the scene. But because of health risks and adaptations, much of this education had to go through via Zoom. My eldest daughter was one of those 400,000. She was a poll worker in 2020 for the first time. She was part of a generation of Americans who stepped into this void. Why was there a void? Because most of all poll workers, David, as you well know, are aged 50, 60, 70, and 80. Hello, what was the most vulnerable age population to COVID? So they opted out, understandably, for health reasons. And for a time, a terrifying time, David, May, June, July in 2020, election administrators did not know if they would find the Americans who would step up and do this work. And they did. And we did this thing, David. That as Americans growing up in this country, I was born in 1962, we universally celebrated. What are those things? Ingenuity, commitment, collaboration, cooperation, stick-to-itiveness, not accepting no for, or failure as an option, doing something under a hard, inflexible deadline and meeting the test of the time. Democrats did that. Independents did that. Republicans did that. African-Americans did it. Hispanic Americans, white Americans, Asian Americans. We all acted in a way to further our American experiment. And a third or maybe a 40% of this country, after everything I just said and everything that is provably true, visibly true, verifiably true, 
believes instead some kind of crime was committed. And it's a dichotomy that wrenches every fiber of my being. Yeah, well, I mean, and uh, obviously endures to this day, 70% of Republicans say uh, that they feel that Biden was illegitimately elected. And this is, you know, I mean, like I said, everything, every action causes a reaction. Uh, You know, there's a sort of downward spiral. Uh, But this is this is sort of fundamental. I mean, this is the fundamental bedrock of a democracy where the people get to decide if people don't believe that their that their voice was counted, that their voice was was recorded, that the process was a sham. Uh, then, you know, those people who invaded the Capitol on January 6th, a, a lot of them were just ordinary Americans. I mean, they weren't all three percenters and old nope. keepers nope. and proud nope. boys. Nope. Uh, but they were persuaded that uh, some great constitutional crime was being committed and it was their duty to be there to prevent it from happening. They believe they were protecting democracy. They believe right. the president called them to come to defense of democracy in the country that they love. Not all of them. And those in the aftermath, there is a whole chapter that David Becker, and just so the audience knows, David Becker worked in the Justice Department in the voting rights section in the, in the Clinton and Bush years, George W. Bush, experience in this field for 25 years. I brought him on board, David, because I needed someone who had the depth of experience and the clarity on the law and the process to help me write with complete conviction in that aspect of this space. And David helped immeasurably in that. Um, but we do this work now better than we've ever done it. That's the great irony. And it's so provable. It, no one, no, all Republicans say, well, of course Trump won in 2016. And he did. It was close, but he won. About 73% of the ballots cast in 2016 were on paper. 95% were cast on paper in 2020. In a couple of key states in 2016, there were no paper ballots. So there wasn't an auditable trail of voter intent. Now we have an audible audible trail of voter intent. We do this better. And people are like, oh, there's a ghost in the machine, the counting machines. Well, go to Nye County, Nevada right now, where Nye County, a small county in the northern part of the state, has decided we're going to hand count ballots. Guess what they've discovered? Hand counting ballots is very difficult. It's time consuming and it's inaccurate. Oh, well, what could the possible remedy of that be? How about a machine optical scanner? Like, oh, optical scanner, it's connected to the internet. No, it's not. And you know what else is an optical scanner? The thing that you drop off at FedEx. Do you drive your package across the country? No, you don't. You give it to FedEx and they optically scan it and the data is recorded and it gets to the place it's supposed to get to. It's the same thing. <laughs> Let me tell you, I have in my office in uh, at the University of Chicago, I have a, an ancient ballot box uh, from uh-huh. Cook County from the day when all the ballots were on paper. And let me tell you, if you think that was a preventative for fraud, uh, <laughs> you are completely wrong. I mean, uh, that was, in fact, a facilitator uh, for for ballot stuffing and and so on. So the 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 systems we have in place today are much different and much uh, 
much more secure. But let me ask you this, because, you know, we just talked about the Democrat, the, the that what, what appears to be a Republican, uh, you know, whether it's a, a flow, a trickle or a tide, things seem to be moving in their direction uh, relative to this midterm election. There are literally hundreds of and hundreds of mm-hmm. candidates around this country. By our count at CBS, 306. All right. Who are who who deny the last election, and so, for some of whom that that whole premise was the basis of their candidacies. In and some cases, so, and some of them are running for secretary of state, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, uh, you know, and they are running to become the uh, administrators uh, mm-hmm. of elections with the promise that they won't certify. Uh, elections that they feel are, uh, you know, not kosher. Uh, by 2020, 2020 standards, uh, this is pretty alarming. Well, so it's more virulent. I thought it would die down after the January 6th riot at the Capitol. It did not. And there are lots of dimensions to this. And there are people on this continuum. Not every one of those 306 Republicans who we put in the denier category and was, let's say, was, for example, empowered to vote against certifying electoral votes. Many did. Some just say, I have questions about it, or I doubt it. Some go so far which as to is say- ta- Which is, by the way, we should say, had become table stakes yes. to uh, sort of the ante to be considered yes. in Republican primaries. If you say, no, I don't believe it. I mean, we've seen a whole bunch right. of people who had the courage to stand up to this, uh, who yes. lost their political careers over it. Right. So, David, I'll, I'll talk in, in jargon that you know very, very well. So I've talked to several Republican uh, pollsters and field strategists. So in Republican primaries, and this was especially true in Arizona. So, you know, the propensity scale that many strategists put together for voters, the four point scale, four, four, three, four, two, four, one, four, zero, four. If you're a four, four, you're going to show up to every primary and general election. You're in, you're locked in, you're a voter, you're high propensity. Obviously, if you're a zero, four, you almost never show up. Well, guess what drives zero fours and one fours in the Republican primary right now? What drives them? One issue. One issue only. Election denial, yeah. Yes. And the more virulent you are, the more you're going to get those zero fours and one fours. Well, David, in a primary, you're looking for every vote possible. And if your rival is vacuuming up as you are, the two fours, the three fours, what is your strategic point of difference? Yeah. Zero fours and one fours. Yeah. And right now, the mentality in Republican primaries is deny the election because denial of elections become a proxy of your devotion to Trumpism. It is no longer about evidence or what actually happened. That's long since gone away. Because you cannot have a coherent conversation with anyone who's in the denial space about what actually happened. They don't even talk about what actually happened anymore because every conspiracy theory has been completely disproven. All they say is, I'm with Trump. I don't trust it, and this is what I believe, and I'm entitled to this belief, and I'm going to vote accordingly. And so in primaries, it's not just table stakes. It's the strategic difference between defeat and victory in many instances. Yeah. Uh, I, I recorded a, a, another Axe Files, which, which will, uh, will run next week. Um, with a fellow you know, Rusty Bowers, mm-hmm. who's the uh, Speaker of the Arizona House, who stood up to the pressures that he he received after the election from from President Trump, from a Rudy deeply Giuliani. conservative Republican. 
Very much so. Very you, much you so. And Dave, you and Rusty do not share very many ideological points of comparison or interest. No, no. You don't, but you believe we, in one thing. Right. Democracy. And he's lost. And, and the he Constitution. Lost his, yes. He lost his, he lost his career. Not to, not to, not to, uh, offer a trailer of things to come, but he, you know, he said when he was talking to Trump in the original conversation, Trump and Giuliani, and they were saying, well, we think 200,000 voters were voted, that illegals voted 200,000 in Arizona and 6,000 dead people, you know, he, and, you know, they went back and forth on this. Um, He said, you know, he thought, well, you know, I mean, they, I'm going to do what I think is right. They can't hurt me. Uh You know, his career is over. He lost his primary by 30 points because he was considered a traitor and because they think the people felt he didn't do his constitutional uh, duty. And the guy who was his nemesis in the Arizona House, uh, uh, I guess it's Mark Fincham. Mm -hmm. Is that the guy's name? Who is, is now the Republican candidate for secretary of state. Correct. One of the most correct. One of the most virulent election deniers there is uh, out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he is in a very very close contest, and may well win. And that you he know might. you have you have candidates in other states, uh, you know in 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 Michigan, Michigan. And Minnesota, Nevada. Nevada. Yep. Uh, you know wh- who are uh, espousing the same the same view. Some of these candidates are going to win. They very well might. And I just want the audience to understand a couple of things about the Secretary of State position. So it will be very, very difficult, if not impossible, for a Secretary of State by himself or herself to look at an election result and say, I by myself will overturn that election result. That is very difficult. Why? Because candidates have legal rights and a candidate who won is not going to sit idly by and watch a Secretary of State declare them the loser and not take power. They have legal rights and they have lawyers, all of them will, and they'll go before the bar and they'll present evidence. What secretaries of state can do, which is much, which as is as as harmful over the long haul is deprive election administrators of results, meaning resources rather, meaning not fund them well enough, not lean into voter education that provides maximum information, to interpret existing laws most harshly. So things in which a voter makes a mistake, an honest mistake, somehow becomes either a prosecutable description of fraud or something that nullifies a ballot. And lots of Americans show up accidentally at the wrong precinct, especially after redistricting. Or they might write a number down incorrectly in an application. It's an honest mistake. They're not trying to game the system. They're just hectic, busy people like most Americans are. Secretaries of state can weaponize small instances like that and either suppress that vote entirely or turn them into make-believe fraud cases and therefore create an atmosphere around voting that is much less accessible and welcoming than it ought to. Those things secretaries of state can do. And if someone like Mark Fincham, who says there's a flaw in the system everywhere, which is what he said on 60 Minutes, even though when Scott Pelley, my colleague, asked for evidence, he had very little of it, and the things he mentioned were of such small statistical insignificance as to be laughable, he still clings to it. And there are others like him. Yes, and there's also 
the question, and certainly this has come into play in Georgia with their new law uh, about the ability of legislatures and or and or secretary of state mm-hmm. or in tandem uh, uh, overruling local election authorities uh mm-hmm. and, and you know who 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 displease them uh and so there are, there are, there is a lot to be but let me let me let me say a, a couple of things uh and and this is part of the conversation that you may not find as uh, as agreeable so we write in the book that the one biggest problem with the Georgia law is that investing of power in the state legislatures yeah. to overrule county election administrators. Many other aspects of that Georgia law were not as harmful as described in the moment. I, I don't find that. I don't find that a disagreeable major. I said okay. at the time that my concern about the Georgia law was about the aspects that could lead to voter nullification, mm-hmm. not the aspects. You know, I, I mean, I do think that what's happened across the country is that in reaction to what is a falsehood, the idea yes. that the last election was fraudulent, that all kinds of election laws have been tightened under the guise of of dealing with a problem that, that doesn't didn't exist. exist. Precisely. So I, I mean, but that 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 concerns me. But this voter nullification stuff is really frightening. You have it to is. know that when you cast your vote, your yep. vote is going to be counted. Precisely. Our other observation about the Georgia law is when President Biden went down and described it as Jim Crow 2.0, he left himself no rhetorical room to look at more restrictive laws like the one in Texas. If you call the Georgia law Jim Crow 2.0, you've maxed out. You've maxed out on rhetoric. And the Texas law and the restrictions therein are much worse, much tighter. Texas was already a hard place to vote. It became a much, much more difficult place to vote. And look at the primary result in March where lots of votes, thousands of votes from experienced primary mail-in voters were nullified because these restrictive rules they couldn't even figure out. And and our point is when you use maximalist rhetoric about a place and time that doesn't deserve it, you deprive yourself of speaking accurately and intensely and passionately about something that is worse and Texas was worse than Georgia. And we also, David, I, I, don't, book, I, I don't disagree okay, at all. Okay. Okay. And we also recount in the book that, that, that election denialism, though virulent and widespread and an article of faith in many respects in the Republican party, Democrats do not have completely clean hands on this. Uh, we talk about 2000, that was a legitimate election with a very close margin and a real question about voter intent. But 2004, there were a handful, very small number, no question. John Kerry didn't indulge in this, but some Democrats did about Ohio. That was wrong. 2016, lots of Democrats were sore losers. Hillary Clinton conceded, but the rhetoric around that was dismissive and undermining of the sense that that was the electoral result and that was the process that played out and it played out. Maybe you were deeply dissatisfied with it, but it was the result and we should yeah, respect yeah. it. And 2018, Stacey Abrams never conceded. And there were issues about that, but those things contributed and Republicans use it as a whataboutism when it's not. We're not saying it's 50-50, but it's not 100 to zero. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, as, as you guys point out in the book, Al Gore eloquently yes, conceded yes. 
that election. John Kerry did not support the objections. No, he did which, not. Uh, which, in fairness, were not aimed at overturning the election. They were aimed at making a point about access yes. to polling places. Right. So it exactly. was used as a, a as a uh, you know sort of more of a rhetorical deal. But nobody was suggesting that. No, that, not at all. That Bush did not uh, win the election. You know, or, or that fake electors should be should be sent from Ohio or anything like that. And no one should have. Marsh, no one marshaled outside the Capitol and ran up the stairs or anything else. All that right. is true. All that is true. The most peculiar thing that's happened in the last uh, 20 years is that in 2020, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in 2016, Donald Trump wasn't a sore loser. He was a sore, sore winner. winner. Yes. As we point and, out, in the uh, book. you know, he uh, and, and cont- uh, contested the idea that he had lost the popular vote right. and paneled a commission headed mm-hmm. by the vice president. That found nothing, 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 which was a which should have been a a, 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 a warning sign about things to come. No doubt. No doubt. No, there there is a particular source of this particular problem. And we are not ambiguous about who that particular source of this particular problem is. So listen, uh, as we as we close out here. Um, I think you and I share this passion. I, I, I should ask you quickly, very quickly, uh, before before I get to this um, stirring ending here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you did work for Fox News for yep. years. What, what is what is their role in all of this? As you watch, uh, you know, because they have they have trafficked in uh, a lot of this disinformation. So. Uh, the audience may remember, I was there for eight years. I left in September of 2010. It was written about at the time extensively. Uh, it was clear that my contract was not up. I had more time to serve under my contract, yeah. and I left early. And we left uh, agreeably, and that's a rarity at Fox. Um, and it is less recognizable to me, David, than it uh, has ever been. Um, and what I knew back then, I still believe to be true in 2020, that in the polling area of Fox and the decision desk matrix, they worked very well. And they had a, a very good and reliable set of professionals who did what the data said. And in 2020, they made a call that even CBS didn't make. They called Arizona along with the AP. Well, CBS did not, not for days. And because we were running through the data on our models, but they were right about that. And Chris Steyerwall, who's a friend of mine, was fired over that. Other people were fired over that for getting it right. I don't think you need to say anything more about the current state of any journalistic organization when getting it right ahead of the competition is a fireable offense. Yeah. What else do you need to know? Let me ask you about, uh, just as we close, about, you know, you and I are both, we, we, we have led parallel lives in the sense that we were fascinated by this stuff from a very early mm-hmm. age. Yeah. Uh, I'm the son of an immigrant. I, I uh, l- love American democracy. I'm grateful to it. Uh, but I'm worried. I'm worried. Mm-hmm. And so uh, gi- I'm giving you an opportunity to close on a, on a hopeful note. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, we, and, and you've already celebrated those, countless citizens who, yeah. who who did their job but it feels like their job is going to become more difficult now because you've got you know they're operating under threat they're operating under you know a cloud of suspicion right so uh let's just say for example republicans win the governor's race in oregon 
which is possible. I'm not predicting yeah. that, but it's possible. No, 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 it very well may happen. There's a split among Democrats there. What are Republicans going to say about mail-in voting then? Mm-hmm. It's an all-mail-in The whole state is mail-in election. voting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. They're going to say, oh, my God, yeah. it's such a great thing. No, no. What happened is there was a Democratic outcome, just as there had been Democratic right. outcomes that preceded that, that the mm-hmm. process is not your problem. The result is your problem. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be moments where Republicans are going to be caught in their own rhetorical madness about this problem that does not exist. Because when they say, oh, my gosh, I won. How do we know? Well, because a process yielded a verdict and confers authority. Well, I thought you said the process was terrible. Well, no, not that I've won. And that will mm-hmm. il- illustrate for all to see the core hypocrisy of this particular message. And I believe that will have, now I could be a completely, completely doe-eyed optimist here, but I believe that hypocrisy has to have a cleansing effect. Now, maybe it doesn't. And maybe the cynics are all right. Yeah, they could say, they certainly could say, well, we would have won by more. Right. Or because we made such a big fuss about this, it got cleaned up on our watch. No, it's the same process. But you asked me to, to offer an optimistic appraisal. Let me just say two things. There's a part of this democratic process, David, that I overlooked for most of my career. You know this as well as I do. Election day is a very quiet day for you and me. Yeah. It's the most unnaturally quiet day of a campaign. And what I mean when I say overlooked it, I took it for granted. Why why is it a quiet day for you and me? Because there's nothing for us to do. Yes. You've done all the work. The arguments have been made, and now it's in the the hands of voters. Yeah. Right. And in that quiet time, in that quiet space, all of the fundraisers, all the donors, all the grassroots activists, all the speechwriters, all the strategists, all the policy people, all the journalists, all my editors, all the field producers, we're all waiting. And in that quiet space, America tells us what's going to happen. We think we're in control. We think we know what's going to happen because we've been so close to it. We've been analyzing it and working through it and sweating and bleeding for 16 or 18 or 20 months or whatever it is. But we, in that moment, have zero power. Nothing happens until the people tell us what happened. And I overlooked that until just recently, that quiet time. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, when you're, uh, when you're in campaigns, it's more than quiet. It's agonizing. Uh, yes. But, yeah. But, um, but you're, because you're, because you're waiting in that, in that anticipatory there's, moment. There's something majestic about, about the, that moment. Something majestic about it. It's so beautiful. It. it is. It is. Listen, uh, we will see. And I believe in that moment. And I believe those moments will continue because we are not going to end this experiment. We are not. Well, thank you for using your voice and your pen uh, to shine a light on this process uh, at a very crucial time. And it's always great to chat with you, my friend. Good to be with you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.